the spring break, or you're staying home for spring break, maybe, or still heading out. Um, we are going to continue in Romans. You can turn to Romans 3, 1 through 20. That's where we're going to be. And uh, give you a little insight into this, this passage for me this week. What I normally do is I'll read a passage three times. Uh, and during that three times that I read it, while I'm studying it, say on Tuesday, um, I'm reading prayerfully, I'm reading thoughtfully, I'm listening with a deep hearing, I'm trying to feel the force of the text. I'm trying to have a deep listening and a deep hearing to plummet the ahas of the text, to see the sights and the, hear the sounds of the text, to taste and touch the text, basically to enter into the heart of the text, Right? And I'll do, I'll work with the original languages because it, it so helps that reality take place. Uh, I'll look for the flow and the map and the structure of the text. Where is it going? Uh, what's its fingerprint? Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at what the big idea is. What's the dominant thought that this passage is communicating? What's the, the life change on the spot that's trying to be worked into our life? What's the gospel point in the text? Now, after doing all of that, three readings of doing all that, then I'll go and grab study aids, mostly commentaries. <laughs> the foremost commentary in Romans at this time is one, it's a monster. It's uh, Douglas Moo's New International Commentary in the New Testament series, and it's 1,112 pages. It's about this big. It is a weapon. It's huge. Uh, here's what he says about the first part of the passage we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 8. This is what he says. He says, The unwary commentator approaches this paragraph thinking to find rather clear sailing after the exegetical whirlpools of chapter 2 and before the theological storms of 321. He or she quickly realizes, or at least this commentator did, that the justice, the justice of Godet's claim, the, the paragraph... 3, 1 through 8 is one of the most difficult, perhaps, in the epistle. What? I mean, I thought chapter 3 was difficult. I thought chapter 4 is difficult. I thought chapter 5 is going to be difficult, and 6, and 7, 8, and how about 9? But he says this is one of the most difficult. So two thoughts immediately raced through my mind when I, heard, when I read this. The first was uncertainty because I said to myself, did I miss something? Because it wasn't that difficult for me. And then the second thought, instantaneously behind the first thought, purely competitive. I bet I'm right. <laughs> right? So here's what we're going to do. We are looking at the last passage in the need for gospel section of Romans. Remember, the need for the gospel goes 118 to 320. We're at 3, 1 through 19, or 320. We are at the last section of the need for the gospel. And here's just for fun, just for fun. When you're hearing one through eight, I want you to try to see who's right. Moo or me. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Yeah, the syntax of what I'm about to read is pretty challenging, so bear with me. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your spirit. Jesus, we thank you that you are the incarnate word of God. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have inscripturated who he is for us. And we ask that you would shine on the page. You give eyes to our sight. You give a heart that trusts and treasures and perceives and understands and actually experiences what's here in the text. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so everything in 118 through 320, that whole section is moving to verse 19. So the whole section that we've been looking at for four or five servants has actually been moving us, getting you and me to verse 19. So let's look at it. Verse 19 is the big idea for the whole need for the gospel section. It's what the passage is doing to us. It's what it's trying to accomplish in us. Here it is. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Romans 3, or Romans 2 and 3.20, so that every mouth may be stopped, or NIV says silent, right? And the whole world accountable to God. I want you to find that phrase, accountable to God. This is the only place in the Bible that phrase occurs. It's called a hapax legomena, a one-time existence. So you can look at the context and kind of decipher the meaning, but you literally have to go to extra biblical Greek to get the accurate interpretation or meaning of that word. Here's what it is in the extra biblical Greek. Liable to prosecution, answerable, accountable. Verse 19 is a cosmic courtroom. It's an epic trial. It is the trial of all trials. 
I want you to find uh, every mouth stopped, ESV, silence, NIV. It means to shut, to close, to be silent. Why? Because there's nothing to say. We are in an epic courtroom. We are in a a cosmic trial. And in a Greco-Roman courtroom, the accused or the defendant would place their hand over their mouth when they had no more words to say to defend themselves. Now, if the accused was judged guilty and continued to talk, the judge or the court would order them to shut their mouths or it will be shut for them by the guards on either side of them. This is what happened to Paul, remember, in Acts 23? He's, behind, he's before the high priest, Ananias, and he is so persuasive and truthful <laughs> and powerful in his words, defending the gospel, defending his ministry of the gospel, that Ananias, Ananias orders the guards on each side of him to strike him in the mouth, to shut his mouth, Right? And the apostle, being the great people pleaser that he is, the winsome winner of flattery, do you know what he said to Ananias? This is what he said to Ananias. God is going to strike you on the mouth, you whitewashed wall, right? I just want an opportunity to say something like that sometime in my life, in my ministry. My wife's like, oh, please. All right, silence is a spiritual condition. 19. Verse 19, it is a spiritual condition. It's the condition of someone who knows they cannot justify themselves. It's someone who has finally stopped talking. Someone who gets deep down in their bones, they cannot save themselves. It's the heart condition of someone who's done, who's finished, who's through with self-salvation strategies, with salvation by creation strategies. They are silent. No more greener pastures. No more romance will redeem me. No more I am a good person and I must be a good person in my eyes. No more I am what people think of me. No more rules, righteousness. No more I need to find my way. No more money can buy me happiness. No more I am and need to be in control of my life. They're silent. Silence is a real spiritual condition. And it's it's a condition of wonder. It's loaded with wonder. And you want, I know you're asking, how can silence be loaded with wonder? Because according to the Bible, and Paul spells it out in Galatians 4, 8 through 9, the most basic principle, the elementary power, force in the world is the need to save yourself. And in verse 19, that need, that power is broken. That is a wonder. This passage is Paul's last shot to get you and me into verse 19. I mean, he's been doing it, right? 64 (laughs) verses pulling us, moving us, 
getting us into 19 because in 19 is safety and in 19 is refuge and in 19 is actually life, right? This is what the passage is doing. This is what the passage is after. You want to know what's the, what's the application, what's the change on the spot for you and me in all of the passages we've been looking at, 64 of them. It's to get you and me to be silent. It's to get us to have deep down in our bones We cannot save ourselves. So stop trying to save yourself. Paul gives us two two spiritual resources, his last stab to get this to happen. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these two spiritual resources. Look look at the first one, verses 1 through 8. All right, so what is going on here? What's happening in this Q&A of Paul's? Well, Paul's a master communicator, so he knows the places where you doubt. He knows the places that you question. He knows where we lack understanding and where we're confused and and chaotic in our thinking. He knows where we have wrong thoughts and wrong feelings and wrong hopes and wrong trust. He knows where we have wrong worship. And so he enters into a Q&A many times and anticipates the questions that we're asking and anticipates the, the issues that are bubbling around in our hearts when they come in contact with reality because he, he knows we have a hard time focusing in on reality. And so he's asking the questions we're asking and then he answers them. That's what's happening in verse in 1 through 8. Now we're just going to get the gist of them. I can't go over all of them. There's too much time. It is rather difficult. <laughs> but here's the deal. He's saying, basically, Paul, are you saying that good religious people are just as sinful and guilty as bad irreligious people? Are you really saying that? That's the question. If you are, the first question is, then what good is it to be a Jew? What good is it to be an Israelite? What good is it to have circumcision to have the law? What good is it to be a good person? What good is it to read your Bible? What good is it to believe in God? What good is it to have divinely sanctioned religious activities if the religious and the irreligious alike are sinful and guilty? We don't ask those questions. That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, here's the other one. If you are saying this, Religious and irreligious are equally, are the same, sinfully lost and guilty. Then doesn't God share some of the blame for religious sin? Because the whole idea of religion is his idea. Isn't he the one that gave circumcision to us? Isn't he the one that gave us the law? So if we're not right, shouldn't he... Share some of the blame. That's a great question. Other questions, verse 5 through 8, is getting at this. If you are saying this, Paul, and God's righteous wrath is glorified on us because of our sin, then isn't human sin a good thing? Doesn't human sin glorify God? I mean, sin should be encouraged, shouldn't it, Paul? Isn't this what you're teaching? Because it glorifies God's righteousness. Paul's response is our first spiritual resource. It's found in verse 9 and 10. Here it is, you ready? What then, to the Q&A above, 
Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Paul's answer, here's spiritual resource number one. All are lost. When you look at that phrase, um, Paul, are you saying good religious people are just as sinful and guilty as bad irreligious people? Yes, he says. Because both are under sin. Yes, because both are righteous. That, it's basically saying the same thing. The first one is doing this. It's getting at the legal spiritual position before God. We're lost before God. We have no legal righteousness before God. So to be before God, we have no acceptability. There's no worth. There's no value. There's, there's imperfection before God. So there's a sense of guilt and there's a sense the opposite of justification is condemnation. It is being rejected before God. Legally, positionally, that's our status. The under sin part is describing a spiritual reality of actually being in a new kingdom, a different kingdom. The kingdom of sin and the kingdom of self and the the kingdom and the reign and the rule and the control of alienation and relational wreckage. Both are saying the same thing. So the person who's stockpiling immorality and addictions and debauchery and the person that's living for a legacy of hard work, discipline, personal responsibility, and honor are alike under sin. Silence. No one can save themselves. All alike are under sin. So Paul says, stop trying to save yourself. Second spiritual resource is found 10 through 18. Now this is a collage of Old Testament texts. If you get a commentary, you get in there, you want to know what the particular texts are, have at it. Psalms, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Isaiah. I mean, it is a collage because he knows his Bible, right? So he's just, he's got, he's, his mind is working and he's grabbing this text and this text and this text all for the second spiritual resource. And what he's doing is he's describing the effects of sin on a sinner. And he has seven devastating effects of sin on a sinner. And so we're going to run through these because it is long. We can't spend a lot of time on it, but it, it, it's import. Each one just adds more wreckage and more ruin to get us into 19. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. We've already looked at that. Sin impacts our legal standing, right? So no one's legally justified. There's no one who's acceptable before God. We are all guilty and lost. And so a self-righteousness cannot save us. No one has the ability to generate a righteousness before God. No one has the ability to make themselves acceptable No one has the ability to generate approvability. He's saying, stop. You can't stop trying to save yourself, right? Verse 11, no one understands. So sin impacts the mind. What was the mind made for? The mind was made to understand. The mind was made to contemplate and understand wonder and beauty and glory And mental health is the mind fixated and captured 
on wonders outside of itself. The mind was made to understand God and understand others and understand yourself and and to look and see this is reality and to live in it, to think it out, to interpret it rightly. But now our minds miss God. Now our minds miss the truth. And now our minds miss most of reality. And not only do we miss most of reality, our minds misinterpret most of reality. So our minds cannot save us. Have you ever been lost in your mind or lost in your head? I mean, what happens to athletes? Watch the gymnasts every four years. I can see it and I can watch it, which one's in their head and is going to mess up. You see it, don't you? You get lost in your head. You get lost in your mind. The mind is constantly trying to save you and me, and it can't. It can't. Verse 11b, no one seeks for God. Sin impacts our motives. So our motives are why we do what we do, right? And this is saying no one really seeks for God. Wait a minute. So you're saying that no one seeks God to answer their prayers? Oh no, we we seek God to answer our prayers. Okay, do we seek God to um, change our life situations and circumstances? Oh yeah, we do seek God to do that. Do we seek God to give us spiritual power and spiritual peace and spiritual resources and to ward off disaster and to intervene in painful places? Oh, of course we seek God to do that. But no one seeks God himself. No one uh, seeks God with the desire just to know him. No one seeks to worship him and trust him and treasure him and obey him and delight in him and have awe for him and to, to be captured and captivated by him simply because of who he is and what he's done. No one seeks God like that. Not one. We seek God's blessings, but no one seeks God himself. Verse 12, all have turned aside. No one does good. No, not one. So sin impacts our will. So sin is willful. Sin is, we, we sin because we want to. We sin because we, we love to. I mean, John says we love darkness. That's why we do it. And I know that sounds like, well, wait a minute. The religious person saying, no, I'm not. And we've already gone through that, so I'm not going to spend all of our time here doing that. But Paul says, oh, yes, we do. Religious person and irreligious person. The will is bent. The will wants. The will wants sin. We interpret what we believe will make us happy, and then we go after it. We want it, is what Paul is saying. So sin is ultimately about our desires. It's ultimately about what we worship, what we want, our passions. That's why we can do an outward good with a self-centered motivation. And that's why we can read our Bible sinfully. That's why we can do ministry for self-exaltation. That's why we can do our careers because we've got to justify our existence. That's why the text says we really ultimately don't do any good because our internal heart 
doesn't match the external behavior. That's what makes a good deed a good deed. All right, 13 and 14, let's move here. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Sin impacts our what? Our words, our tongues, our communication. The image here is an open grave, so it's like this. You have an open grave. Your mouth is an open grave. Your words are an open grave, and inside are dead bodies, decaying bodies. And so our words reveal death. Our words reveal our hearts is what the passage is saying. And our words um, have poison on them. They're deadly. They tear down. They criticize. They slander. They gossip. They, They verbally abuse. They judge. They boast. They people please. They flatter. Right? This is all that's happening here. So they're revealing what's really going on in our hearts. So our words are a good indication of what our hearts are really like. So how are our words? Right. Verse 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So sin impacts our relationships. In what way? We are all after each other's blood. Yikes. Others block us, and they keep us from getting what we want, so we spill their blood. Literally or figuratively or emotionally or relationally, we do. If others are used to get what we want, we're still using or spilling their blood. So every area is being touched here. Do you see? There's not an area that's not wrecked. The last one, verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is a wrecked relationship with God. And it's that wrecked relationship with God that wrecks everything else. So sin has wrecked us. It's a comprehensive, complete wreckage. Silence, Paul says. No one can save themselves. It's total. It's complete. There's, sin is so... Uh, wrecked you and me, there's, there's nothing there to save us. So stop trying to save yourself, Paul is saying. Two spiritual resources. All are lost, all are wrecked. Let them lead you into verse 19. Let them lead you into silence. Let them lead you to a very safe place. But I know that we've got one question. We're going to answer that before we end here. Isn't all this emphasis on sin psychologically unhealthy? I mean, how have y'all felt for the past? How long have we been doing this? For like 20 minutes going through that thing? I mean, I was getting tired, weren't you? I'm fatiguing. I'm like, oh, I, do I want to say? Is this psychologically unhealthy for you and me? I mean, you really got to resolve this because this will set your Christian life if you're a Christian It will set the direction of any church. It will determine what your mission is as a church. This is probably one of the most important things outside of what we're going to look at when we end it. How do you perceive and interpret what we just did? Is this psychologically unhealthy? Is Paul leading you to a psychological unhealthiness? Is he leading you in the direction of self-hatred? Is he leading you to the direction of just this inferiority and this self-loathing? Is he leading you in the direction of discouragement and anxiety? 
Does this make you anxious? Is he leading you in the direction of despair and depression and multiple personality disorder and on and on and on? Is he? No. He's actually doing the opposite. He's leading you out of it. He's leading you away from denial and repression and Disney World. He's leading you away from hopelessness, despair, and depression. He's leading you away from all the horrible psychological defense mechanisms that we have in our life. All due to trying to ignore what was just said. How do we know this? Because look what immediately follows verse 19. If you look at 20... It's tucked in there. It's a secret. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge. And there's the first glimpse of light that just shined on the page in that word justification. 19 is immediately leaving you into justification. And not only that, this is the last of the sections. So 19 is actually leading us into a whole new section called 321, literally to the end of the book, but we're going to break it up at 5. And in 321 to 5, we now go into the bedrock of the power of divine life and divine strength and divine power of the gospel in chapter 1, 16, and 17. In other words, 1, 16, and 17 is unpacked, unveiled, exploded in 321 through 5. Paul's goal is to get you there, and the door is verse 19. No one walks through to the green pastures and the still waters of 321 through the rest of the book of Romans until they're silent. Until they stop trying to save themselves. In other words, it's psychologically unhealthy to not call yourself a sinner. the epitome of psychological health and the epitome of psychological freedom is to be able to say, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Not only will you avoid all the horrible psychological defense mechanisms that we all do, but now you're on your way into justification. Now you're on your way into 321 through chapter 5. So here's a taste. It's just a taste, and we'll start next week. I want you to look at verse 11b again. Look at no one seeks for God. Do you see that? This means if someone does seek God, God must have first sought them. If anyone seeks God, God must have first sought us. So God changes hearts. God opens eyes. God shows up. So God's not hiding. Jesus says it this way, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him 
This means God is on the move and God is at work and God is moving in every life situation. And when we get to Romans, we're going to see that means every life situation. He's at work. He's on the move. He's seeking. He's the God of all grace. So he's hunting. (laughs) He's going after you. He's reaching you. He's doing the whole work of saving it's unbelievable. We're going to get to like Romans 8, 28, and we're going to see that all things, bad things, horrible things, and good things, he is overriding, overmastering, and working to seek you and save you. So God is actively, presently, right now, seeking and working and saving those who cannot save themselves. You know what this means? Call out to him. This means seek him. This means pick up your Bible and look for him looking for you. So when you go to church, you, you, you call out to him, you seek him, and you look for him because he's already looking, reaching for you. Love him because he loves you first. Pursue him because he's hunting you down. In fact, David said he pursues me all the days of my life with his loyal love and his goodness. There's not a day that he doesn't. There's not a moment that he doesn't. This is incredibly good news. Here's how we're going to end. C.S. Lewis wrote a stunning piece called The Inner Ring. Anybody read that? The Inner Ring? I know Richard probably did. Did you, Richard? Yeah. Uh, Lewis believed that everyone is struggling to get inside an inner ring. We could say it this way. If Paul was here, everyone is struggling to save themselves. Everyone is struggling to get into 321 through the rest of Romans. Everyone is struggling to get into Romans 1, 16, and 17. Everyone is doing that. And he says this, it's a long one, so hang in there. It's well worth the read. It's well worth the listen. Here it goes. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age. So in other words, he's covering everything. All right? One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. This desire in one of its forms, has indeed had ample justice done to it in literature. So people write about it. In fact, the best literature writes about it. Right, Richard? There we go. There's a literature expert. I mean in the form of snobbery, he says. Ooh. Victorian fiction is full of characters who are hag-ridden by the desire to get inside that particular ring, which is or was called society. But it must be clearly understood that society in the sense of that word is merely one of a hundred rings that everybody's trying to get into. And snobbery, therefore, only one form of the longing to be inside. A thing may be morally neutral, and yet the desire for that thing may be dangerous. Let inner rings be unavoidable. And let an innocent feature of life, and even an innocent feature of life, though certainly not a beautiful one. But what of our longing to enter them? What of our anguish to try to get inside them when we're excluded and the kind of pleasure we feel when we finally get in? 
My main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire is one of the great permanent mainstreams, mainsprings of human action. In other words, it's why you do what you do. You're trying to get in. This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, advertisement, and if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, when you may be quite, you may be quite sure of this, the quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. Paul is leading you to verse 19, where your struggle for the inner ring is broken. Jesus brings you in. Jesus leads you into the inner ring. And he did so by his doing, and he did so by his dying, and he did so by his rising, so you don't have to do, and you don't have to die. He did it. You're in. Silence. You cannot save yourself. Trust the one who saves you. That's the grace of God. That's where this book is going. And getting that deep into your bones is what the rest of the book is trying to do. It's not going any other place. If you're waiting for some other second work or secret of the spiritual life, I'm sorry. We won't do that for you. But if you want to enter into and feel the force of that, if you want that to become your lifeblood, if you want that to infect your marriage, if you want that to be pushed into your parenting, if you want that to become your identity, if you want that to be the stuff of your life, fasten your seatbelts. Put on your crash helmets. Because that's where we're going. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Romans. And we thank you that when we're done, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we quit, you never do. And thank you that you are seeking us. You're not hiding from us. And thank you that even now as we take the Lord's Supper, it is the utmost pursuit of you for us. It shows us that you did give all. You did seek all. You held nothing back. You spent everything you had. You ran and did everything to get us and seek us. So we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the Lord's Supper. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.